Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Arindam Chakrabarti, author of Realism's Interlinked, Objects, Subjects, and Other Subjects, published in 2019 by Bloomsbury Press. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Arindam. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. So your book argues for metaphysical realism, and you're drawing on both Nyaya Vaisheshika philosophers as well as analytic philosophers. And throughout the book, you leverage our intuitions about the reality of some objects to demonstrate that we should be committed to a, a thoroughgoing realism, and including things like universals and substantial selves. So throughout this interview, we'll unpack your reasoning, but let's just start with the big picture. What is your book's main goal, and why did you think it was important to write? Okay, um, I will mostly have to say what my goal was not, mm-hmm. because you know, like a senile old man, I get irritated by even the slight misunderstanding uh, of what my purpose of the book was. So I was not writing obviously on Indian philosophy or a book in Indian philosophy that I think every reviewer understands. I was neither just wanting to demonstrate um, how to do intercultural philosophy, and we'll have some other discussions about that, about the method later on. But I have been studying, researching, writing, most of all, teaching philosophy uh, for more than three decades. And the personal goal was, uh, the proximate goal, was not just to collect my own papers on metaphysics and epistemology, because those are mostly what I have collected, but to explain, explore the interconnections uh, between apparently stray articles and, and, and topics that I have picked up. And mostly my orientation, because of my training with my two great teachers uh, and three great teachers, philosophy of language, of philosophy of language, was first with uh, the great Calcutta philosopher of logic and language, Professor Pranav Kumar Sen, and then with uh, Professor Michael Dummett and Peter Strossen. So I approached all of these issues, for example, uh, meanings of a pronoun like I, meaning of the adjective true, and the strange, strange noun, nothing, for example, and the meanings of these words. And uh, as I, as I noticed, reread and rewrote 
those papers, like I touch what I saw, that this forms one of the main pillars of the book. And I saw that um, three themes were emerging, and one is the nature of objects. The other was the nature of uh, self, of subject. And then, more recently, my work into ethics, politics, um, and uh, the problem of other minds. So, other subjects. Um, mm -hmm. So, originally, I didn't want to call the book Realism Interlinked. I called it Subjects, Objects, and Other Subjects, or Objects, Subjects, and Other Subjects, which now stands as the, the subtitle. But then, um, looking at the content um, on the basis of an anonymous reviewers, the, you know, like the pre-publication review, right, right. Um, uh, Colleen Qualter, the Bloomsbury acquisition editor, for philosophy, she suggested that why don't I bring to forefront uh, my stake for realism? Mm -hmm. And even now, recently, I saw just today actually that in a blog, Elisa Frischke says, I'm an outspoken realist. Once mm -hmm. again, like an old, annoying person, I would say, Well, that's not what the goal was. It was not really to defend realism, but and I thank Colleen for that correct title, the link between different realisms. I so I think it's perfectly, I want to show that it's perfectly okay to um, be an over, across the board anti-realist about universals, external objects, about selves, about, uh, you know, God, whatever, about the past and the future, which I don't talk too much about in this. Well, there is a chapter on the future, I think. Right. But, um, but it's perfectly okay. And uh, as I think my, my friend Mark Sideritz says, uh, to be an across-the-board anti-realist about, about everything without being quite um, Nagarjuna or Jay Garfield-like that um, uh, all philosophical problems are kind of... Um, some kind of disease of misunderstanding language or something. I think the problems are very genuine. So I just wanted to explore the goal of the book was both personally as well as uh, intellectually, academically, philosophically, to show the connections between being committed to a mind-independent reality of, let's say, common properties mm -hmm. um, and uh, and external objects, and some uh, self, uh, which is permanent, uh, need not be immortal, but permanent across different corporations. And, uh, and uh, if you are not committed to that, if you refute that, then, of course, um, you have to pay the price mm -hmm. of also not being able to uh, take physical objects uh, in a realist way, uh, and that I thought would be newer and something new. Of course, you know, in philosophy, it's very, very hard to come upon a brand new stuff. And something about this I've also written 
mm-hmm. uh, separately on creativity and uh, how can you have a new problem. And uh, but uh, once again, uh, it was not. I'll, I'm at a little. I can put it this way. I, I'm a tad sad mm. if people think that this is just an exercise in uh, showing. Look how much is common between Nyaya and analytic right. philosophy. No, it was right. not like that. That's right. But so, so as you noted, there's a wide-ranging set of topics here that are intertwined right, together. Right, right. Nyaya, Indian philosophy, beyond Nyaya philosophers, of course. How, so let me ask, how did you come to be interested in these, these topics, uh, metaphysics and just philosophy more generally? Um, I mean, it would have been humble of, of me to say that um, but not true to say that, well, one had to teach. I have done many kinds of teaching jobs, uh, you know, in America, in England, in, in India. And so one taught all these different things. But that's not actually true. This is another answer which I don't accept because that's not true. I was very lucky. And that's, you know, it's symptomatic that I started answering your first question by naming my teachers, mm-hmm. because I, um, I really got great teachers, even in high school. So in, in high school, I, for my English style to improve, I don't know, in a very prescient way, uh, the same English teacher who was uh, this is in a Calcutta Bengali medium school, not an English mm-hmm. medium school. Mm-hmm. So he was recommending to other people, you know, read Keats or read Wordsworth or read, you know, Henry James or read, uh, you know, um, what was it? Somerset Mom for style or something. And to me, he recommended Russell. (laughs) And he said, so I knew thereby that I have no future in fiction writing. And uh, I was so unliterary. And, but he said, that's, that's your life's path. <laughs> I don't know. He, he was a very ordinary, um, uh, but a very caring English teacher. Fantastic mm. uh, foresight. So he gave me this book called In Praise of Idleness, which is not mm. even, a, and that got me from eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, and then first year. By the time I came to Presidency College, uh, Calcutta, to study philosophy honors or something. Uh, other people from other disciplines, uh, historians and you know, who are kind of famous people now, uh, they started writing in the college magazine that he is the prospective chairman of the Russell Snob Society, who after <laughs> all, always dresses in a dhoti. So I had nothing to do with Russellian or, you know, I was, I hated sort of uh, anglicization in, in, in sort of demeanor and, and dress. But I was sort of completely inside, and I guess secretly I still am, um, a sort of Russellian. I disagreed with him on many, many mm. matters. But the style of philosophizing and the sincerity and, uh, and the sort of burning passion to, for truth and, uh, and self-criticism and changing his own views so mm-hmm. that's what it's got me started. But then immediately, 
But once I started reading seriously, and this, I'll end the uh, answer here. Mm-hmm. This, I went to G. Moore. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because in Russell's autobiography, I found that although Russell's style and living way and even writing style was so different, so restless, and so much more passionate than the sort of boring, painstaking tediousness of G. Moore, but he really admired him as a person. So then I started reading. And with 1903, Refutation of Idealism, it's like my eyes of philosophy were opened up. Hmm. Hmm. And for the rest of my life, the problem of refuting idealism and how, and then uh, around in master's degree or something, I was exposed to Brahma Sutras of Shankar. Hmm. And I see this, apparently strange thing happening. Like we all know he's an idealist. He thinks the external world is an illusion. But then he, with great gusto, with six, seven different arguments, he refused the Yogachar Buddhists who are idealists. Mm-hmm. So what is he doing? Is he? And I could not take the easy sort of Indologist way out that, well, for doctrinal and political reasons, he had to refute the Buddhists, but he took everything from the Buddhists, mm-hmm. and he was a closet Buddhist himself. All of that seems completely bunkum to me. So there must be a position which refutes idealism completely and establishes the existence of external objects and shows how it is important to do that. And yet, not only pays complete tribute to the Upanishads and to everything being consciousness and so on, but, uh, but also consistently does that. Of course, as of now, I go with the ordinary uh, explanation of that, two levels, right? Empirically mm-hmm. realist and transcendentally idealist, mm-hmm. like Kant. So that's how you, I got into it in my philosophical adolescence. And to be very honest, and that's why I wanted to say more at the end, um, Mm -hmm. I am still negotiating that. That's why I'm hesitant to say that I am an outspoken realist. I'm outspoken, Mm -hmm. no doubt. (laughs) I'm not not an unambiguous realist, just as my teacher Michael Dummett, everybody took him to be an anti-realist. But both personally, he has said in some of his last writings, um, he was so disorganized in his personal life, he never got to give an inaugural lecture at that every chair professor of logic uh, gave before him. Uh, you know, um, A.J. Ayer gave and Strawson gave in the metaphysics chair. He never, he said, no, I'm preparing for it. And for like 25 years, he was that in that chair. And then at the end, he wanted out of the university that he should give his inaugural professorial lecture at the end of his career before he retired. <laughs> and he did. And he wrote this paper called Realism. Okay. And there you can sh- clearly see that he's not, he's just experimenting how far can you go and what does it take to be a realist? And there are problems that he faces. And I think by my recent, more recent study 
and teaching of Abhinav Gupta mm-hmm. uh, and Kashmir Shaivism, I am seeing some cracks in, in an outright realistic positions. Mm-hmm. But the purpose for, has been from my undergraduate days to understand this mystery. How can a rank external world realist who is so opposed to Yogacharya like Shankara, how can he say that I, my subject, is everything that there is? So that's the that's the, anim- the animating puzzle that you've been thinking about. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's. Your book is, as you said, it's uh, 25, 30 years worth of work, intertwined, interlinked, and so we're not going to go chapter by chapter. That'll that would just be too much for the interview. We'll we'll encourage readers or excuse me, listeners to read it. But there are these three parts of the book, the, the objects, subjects, and, and, and other subjects. So let's just start with the, the first part, titled Objects. So for, for our listeners, what are you meaning by object here? And what are the objects that you're, if not arguing that we should accept, considering that we should accept in our ontology? What are these objects? Well, um, some of this I've already said in the book. And uh, some of it, I just noticed again recently, March 27, 2021, this year, uh, Colin McGinn, in his blog, writes a long entry called Objects. And he says something um, which I think I am a counterexample to. Mm -hmm. He says, the word object occupies a prominent place in philosophy, but it is seldom scrutinized in any depth. I think I have scrutinized the concept yes. of object yes. in some depth. And the most, there is only one image or photograph in my book, mm-hmm. in the Realism's book. And that shows what I mean by objects. And it brings together all the three themes also. And the picture is of uh, El Greco's, by painting of El Greco, where not only two men of different ages, one little boy and one older man, uh, in the light, with the light of a candle, is examining something together. But apart from two human beings, two conscious beings, there is a monkey, which is also looking at it. Now, so an object is something that different individuals, human individuals, and humans, non-humans, all of them, and maybe gods, I don't know, angels, but many from many different perspectives, when the embodied perspective of these different people are different, but they can all focus together on a single thing. And that thing is an object. Okay. And this availability of a single object of See, I mean, a single item of attention is central to it, but equally central are about four other, four or five other features. One is what is referred to by a word. And here, in my usual style, and I don't do this only in reading English texts by switching to understand the use of the word object, 
by understanding Sanskrit words, three words, mm-hmm. as, as you know, artha, which directly connects it with padartha, the meaning of the word, mm-hmm. which also means an object, vastu, which means a real entity, okay, and very often means a material object, as well as vishaya. Now, these are three words. All of them we translate as objects in English, okay? And similarly, when I read about, in Sanskrit, about what is, what is the vishaya, I immediately think, and I would urge my students and fellow researchers to think, that don't keep Sanskrit studies or Indian studies so pure, okay? So just as doing Anglophone or European or even studying Levinas in, the, in, a, in a pure lily white way is counterproductive. Similarly, one should not read Sanskrit texts, philosophy texts in a pure brown way. You know, pure brown ways has bad, okay? Uh, yes, we learn from the pundits, but good pundits, even now, the Sanskrit traditional scholars, are very eager. You know, I wrote this uh, Sanskrit book on contemporary uh, modern Western epistemology, Adunika Pratichya Pramanam Imamsa, and not because I wanted to advertise how great Western was, but because the Sanskrit-speaking pundits in, you know, 2002-3-4, they were eager to know are these problems of ours discussed there? And mm-hmm. they want to enrich. So everybody knows, even the greatest, except the sort of Hindu chauvinists who, who think everything is already there in the Vedas and nothing. Everybody, the more traditional Sanskrit scholars, they are the more eager to know, you know what is in the West. Mm-hmm. I know Professor Matilal's Nyaya teacher, who taught him, not only wrote the biggest book in modern languages on Vaibhashika philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, just mm-hmm. on Vaibhashika Darshan, on Abhidharma Kosha, okay? But he was individually for 20 years taking training from Kesi Bhattacharya's son, who was a Western philosophy teacher, in Aristotle. Mm-hmm. This is a pundit yeah. who is the teacher of Professor Matilal, Teacher yeah. of my my Nyaya teacher Vishwamandu Tarkatirtho, my Ananta 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 Tarkatirtho, and he was eagerly taking training in Greek philosophy and Aristotle, just to you know find out yeah. what does Aristotle mean by an object. Yeah. So so we we should buy a word. We should buy Well, the first is Artha. Mm-hmm. Artha, okay, Artha, which takes you to meaning referent of mm-hmm. a word, okay, not meaning in the sense of lakshana or dyotana mm-hmm. or yanjana, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. simply vachyartha, you know, like literal meaning, okay. Mm-hmm. But then, what thought or will is about? That's the vision. So the entire problem of aboutness is in the, uh, as I say these days, because I'm also on the side writing a book which is called Philosophy of Grammar. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's actually a philosophy of language textbook, but I arrange it according to nominative, accusative, instrumental, 
dative, ablative, genitive, and locative. And I place seven classic issues of Western philosophy. Okay, on these seven, you know, verb-related roles. That's what I call the karak. I no longer call it cases. Although initially I thought I'd call the book all that is the case. <laughs> yeah, but but you know it's more accurate to call it. So the entire right. problem of freedom is in karta, the doer. But mm-hmm. more of that. The second is accusative. This mm-hmm. is part one of the objects, one of mm-hmm. the chapters in the book. Accusative, mm-hmm. the grammatical mm-hmm. accusative. So what thought is about, what will is about, what uh, more than one subjects can perceive and focus on, which I started with, something independent of our knowledge. And I like to put it these days as something which is ignorance tolerant. Hmm. That is, it exists, it can exist tolerating everybody's ignorance about it. That is my ignorance about it. So I may be ignorant about it, which actually gives us access to it very not yet fully explored concept in Advaita Vedanta that Mohanty has done good work on, which is the object of ignorance, not just object of knowledge, which takes you back to Mino's paradox. That, you know, if you ask somebody, a student says, sir, will you please teach me this? I don't understand this. I don't know this. Right. You can Socratically ask that person, can you be a little more precise? What is it that you do not and as he tries to be precise, the object of ignorance at some point turns into an object of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. another sense of object. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So those are senses of objects. And so among these kinds of uh, mind-independent uh, entities, uh, contents of our thought, objects of our thought, you consider, for instance, universals. Yeah, uh, and the reality of universals. Now, this this is a, a, a discussion that for people working in analytic philosophy, if they know Strawson and Armstrong and others, this is this is familiar terrain. But one of the interesting aspects of the work that you're doing here is considering not just the existence of universals as real entities, right. but right. the fact this this idea that we can perceive universal so we can hear things like the musical work not just the tokening of the work or seeing things like whiteness or hoarseness can you tell the listeners a little bit about this argument why would we think that universals are not just real but perceptible right and uh, and again like in other subjects other topics uh, it is a very living question for me uh, not just to figure out which faction between nominalism and realism about universals, a Parsian realism about universals, or a, a, you know Armstrongian, where I shall place my view? I'm not that hung up on, you know, just locating myself in one of these parties because I think the best thing lies as as in the setup of the Bhagavad Gita between the two armies. Right between the two armies, you get the best, best picture, and uh, um, so I actually did some empirical research, just like psychologists do, asking around people. Mm-hmm. So when I was a fellow at Trinity College, 
when I was writing in, in Cambridge for some time, um, there was my best friend was a um, young composer, music composer. And I would go and uh, I would go to his room and I'll see that, you know, he's writing the score. And uh, so my simple question was, uh, do you think the work, the musical work that is emerging, is that work, these little squiggles on the paper that you are writing? He said, no, 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 not at all. Okay, the squiggles, you know, are particular. He, he himself said. Mm -hmm. So I said, what do you mean? So he said, well, this work, if it catches on, if it, it can be played by different groups at different times. And I would say, you know, over 50 different renditions of it, different orchestras, sometimes even different instruments on the harpsichord or on, on the piano, okay? And something like that. He said, it will still be the same work. Then I've got, I've got my answer, the work. So then I started reading some uh, music reviews and some reviewers said that what you hear is not the musical work, which is a universal, but a particular interpretation of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, why were they writing that? And my diagnosis is that even the most universal friendly philosopher in the West, uh, Strawson, with whom I wrote, I co-edited a book on universals, concepts, and qualities, uh, new essays on the meaning of predicates. He was, he was all the way, he in fact said, I am a Nyaya person about this. <laughs> and he really liked particular qualities, the gunas and, you know, and that. But he said, Arina, I would go with you all the way up to realism about universals, everything. But this perceiving with our senses, the universal, I just cannot stomach that. Mm -hmm. So this is something that it seems even English language or the, or the European mentality, because this is all Plato's fault. Because the moment the realism about universals is wedded historically and in the psych cultural psyche with denigration of perception. Mm -hmm. Okay. Perception is of all fleeting objects, you know, permanent, impermanent, particulars. But generality is universals only known by reason. But this is this hang up is not there for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it is not there for common sense because interpretation of the musical work. Okay. Again, I asked my musician composer friend. He said, yes, there's a particular composer. When, when he will play this, every time he will play this, he will interpret in a particular way, not different ways. So the same interpretation can be hard many times also. Mm -hmm. Which means again, ekam one, but multiple. So simple criterion, repeatability. Mm -hmm. Now, what is repeated? Why would you say that's not seen or heard or perceived. You don't see the style. You think about the style. No, I want to claim. I see the style. The only work that has to be done, which is already done by Nyaya, is to show that the relation between my eyes, my let us say my retina, or my eye, you know, eyes, okay, 
what is the relation between the eyes and the object? Now you say, the retina is a particular material surface. How can it be in contact with something which is not physical? Right. Well, it does not need to be in contact. Mm -hmm. Contact is only one of the five different, six different relationships. Mm -hmm. Okay. If my eyes are in contact with a wall, which is physical, mm -hmm in which inheres a universal property that is common to all walls, mm -hmm. then I not only see the wall, particular wall, I see. Now, here, again, kowtowing to a sort of platonic prejudice, people would say, I see that the wall mm -hmm. is a wall. Mm -hmm. Now, I would say, I see wallness. Mm -hmm. Because to see that this particular object, whatever it is, is a red wall behind me, mm -hmm. is not only to see that this particular object has these properties in my thought, mm -hmm. but to see all elements of this judgment, which is that particular object, the red color, as well as wallness. And all of these are connected in different ways to my eyes. And if mm -hmm. I can give that work, which I have done, there's no problem saying that the universal can be seen. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of brings me to a, a bit of a method question that you, you hinted at earlier, that what you're definitely not doing in this book is, here's what Nyaya says, here's what Strassen says. Right. Look, there's some similarities, or let me get clear on the, what Nyaya says in this text and, and just textual exegesis. So maybe kind of thinking about what you're doing here with this argument about the perceptibility of universals and, and other kinds of arguments where you're drawing on Strawson and you're drawing on Nyayakas, how would you characterize the kind of philosophy you're doing in this book? I mean, we use words like comparative, cross-cultural, fusion. Do you have a, a name for it? How do you think about what you're doing? Yes, I do have a name now. And you might have noticed that I didn't discuss much method. And in fact, Elisa Freshki has uh, said in my uh, mild criticism mm -hmm. that I never discuss or justify my method. Mm -hmm. Okay, But about methods, I have done a postscript to a book that uh, Ralph Weber and I yep. co-edited called yep. A Comparative Philosophy Without Borders. Mm -hmm. Even that book, we didn't want to call Comparative Philosophy Without Borders. We wanted to call Philosophy Without Borders. Okay, so now uh, in fact, I have to submit it today. Um, Ralph and I are writing another piece um, of another paper, and we call it our philosophy, just philosophy. Okay, mm -hmm. and uh, in both the senses of just. So one is where the word just is just a marker that you might as well delete that adjective. Mm -hmm. Anything when I say I'm just talking, I mean I'm talking. So yeah. it's very interesting. As an adjective which sits before the noun, just is like the predicate true. Just as when you say coal is black, it's true. You just mean coal is black. Right. When you say just words or just philosophy, you mean philosophy. That right. means a redundancy theory of the adjective just. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and, and this is something to think about, which I didn't think about 
until this interview now, just now, <laughs> that there is a maybe a connection between truth and justice. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so it's also in the sense of justice. Great epistemic injustice has been done because or in, in spite of colonialism for not just centuries, but for, you know, thousands of years. Uh, well, it was not an injustice. If the Romans discussed Roman philosophy and exoticized whatever is happening in India, and uh, we discussed Indian philosophy, that, that was one kind of injustice, not knowing what the other person is doing and distorting it. But once global connection is made, once regularly Oxford philosophers are going to teach philosophy to China, mm-hmm. and I talked to Sir John Sir once here uh, with uh, my senior and now late lamented colleague Elliot Deutsch. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went out for uh, for a dinner, and we all asked John, "You have been you have been going to China for many years." Yeah. to teach philosophy. Have you, uh, do you talk about Confucian philosophy? Have you learned? Mm-hmm. And politely, but not so politely, he said, well, um, no, no, they want me to teach philosophy, not Chinese philosophy. And mm-hmm. I don't know anything about Chinese philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I, am no, I have no interest. And mm-hmm. uh, it's not philosophy in our sense. Now, these mm-hmm. are great epistemic injustices that you are another compatriot of mine. Who are working against it. But look, you cannot work against it if all you publish, all you teach is ghettoized as Indian philosophy or comparative philosophy. And it's not just a rebellion because anyone who reads this book, anyone who reads Janatan Ganeri's self, Mm -hmm. okay, anyone who reads this book should see that what what is going on. It's it's philosophy. Mm -hmm. The only difference from uh, Lily White philosophy is that it it does take notice of really white philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's yeah. all. Uh, yeah. And but I, I I don't want to encourage or myself ever practice this kind of uh, animosity because mm-hmm. you know more than sixty percent of this philosophy I've I've learned from from the West. Yeah, sure. And uh, and uh, but then. That has helped me rediscover the Upanishads mm-hmm. in a very deep, deep way. And uh, so I would yeah. just add one more thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that I cannot, in a metaphilosophical way, still clarify, because this is one of the very important questions that I have. But the adjective just philosophy, as I said, should be just eliminated. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I'm trying to do in this book is philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want it to sound pompous, uh, but um, I'm not doing comparative. But I'm also mm-hmm. trying to do, I will never say this out loud, but I'm trying to do deep philosophy. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. And as soon as I say that, and now at least for the last four or five years, since I went to Stony Brook for two years, mm-hmm. I would start a, um, a Wittgenstein seminar always by asking this question. What makes a thought, an experience, or an emotion, mm-hmm. or a relationship, these four things, a thought, an experience, an emotion, or a relationship, deep, as against shallow. Mm-hmm. 
because there is a strain in Wittgenstein's later philosophy where he says everything lies on the surface, right? Which is not to say it's shallow, because the surface, including the skin of human skin, is something pretty deep. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. and thought about it, but it's not clear. So I asked the students, very brilliant, bright, bright PhD students, what do you mm-hmm. mean by deep? And yeah. some say complex. Mm-hmm. The first answer, long-lasting, that goes away immediately yeah. because lots and lots of long-lasting relationships are very shallow. Okay, and lots and lots of very deep relationships can be short-lived, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate, mm-hmm. but it happens. Yeah. Similarly, emotions. Okay, you can have an intensity. Intensity does not make deep. So they finally we have settled on complex. But these days I'm thinking, and this connects it with today's interview, mm-hmm. deep a thought or a set of thoughts or a set of emotions or a set of relationships that we have are deep when they're interconnected. Mm-hmm. And when one is aware, even vaguely aware of the interconnection, your anger is deep. If you are angry at your beloved and it is your anger is deeply, is, you perceive it to be connected to your love, especially mm-hmm. those things are deep, like philosophy, which mm-hmm. discovers connection right. among not apparently unconnected things, philosophies, views, but also opposite views. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the ultimate task would be to do philosophy in such a way that you can show and this is sounding very Hegelian now, which I don't like, but that a philosophical, a, a, a practice of philosophy, for example, uh, my inaugural lecture, I would like to send you that, uh, okay. in, in Stony Brook, is called Pain, Poetry and the Practice of Philosophy. And so philosophy of pain, done through neuroscience, through uh, phenomenology, through cognitive science, everything, through just examination of, what Buddha means by dukkha, three mm-hmm. kinds of dukkhas, etc., etc. Philosophy of pain becomes much more than exposition, much more than spiritual practice, much more than meditative. If you discover that it has something very deep to do with philosophy of pleasure, mm-hmm. so the opposites get related, and then both get deep mm-hmm. in that sense. In that sense, what the book is trying to do, and I'm trying to do more after the book, is deep philosophy. I hope mm-hmm. it's not sounding too arrogant. No, that's 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 helpful, uh, and we. I think there's there's lots there we could say about um, what you just what you just said for. Uh, but for the sake of time, let's see if we can explore some of these these complexities in subjects and uh, inter intersubjectivity and in other subjects, uh, and maybe some of these themes again. Uh, about pleasure and pain and experience might come up um, if we talk about Abhinavagupta and, and things. But um, in any case, so in the third, the, you talk about objects, you talk also about um, subjects. So right. w- one of the things that if people don't know much about Indian philosophy that they might know or think they know is that it's focused a lot about the existence or the non-existence of the self. Yeah, uh, and so one of the things that I like about the book is, it, you know, again in terms of these interconnections, you're not just talking about uh, the Buddha and early Nyaya philosophers. You're drink, bringing in um, uh, Madhusudana Sarswati, Abhinavagupta, people that the people aren't necessarily 
familiar with uh, just uh, right. in philosophy. And some of these philosophers have uh, really sophisticated uh, discussions of reference. I mean, we talked about language right. earlier and how we can derive ontological conclusions from just our ordinary linguistic use, like the word I. This right. is indexical. And of course, this connects up with, with Strawson very well. So maybe can you just explain to us a little bit here about the conclusion that the indexical I refers to this thing you call a Strawsonian person. So in this section that I'm thinking of, you're bringing together this idea of Strawsonian persons and you're, you're juxtaposing it against Abhinavagupta, Madhusudana Sarasvati, Gadadhara, and, and a, a, a range of philosophers here. So we can't get into all the right. details, but right. you know, what's, what's going on here in, at a high level? Right. I have, um, I'll give a sort of scholastic sounding answer but um, uh, just to go to Advaita Siddhi of Matusudana Saraswati, mm -hmm. I mean, um, there are these arguments that, um, that I quote on, on page 120, 121. Mm -hmm. So whatever is meant by the word I, is the first premise, is other than the self. Now, it's not a premise, it's the conclusion, like in the Indian mm -hmm. uh, formulations of the arguments that you start with the conclusion. What I'm trying to prove. Why? Because it is an object of the sense of ego. Okay. So there is this, just as you have noticed that there is a distinction, everybody has noticed, between inner sense, which is called manas, translated uh, misleadingly, but all pervasively as mind, right. um, and self, because manas is just an inner instrument and mm -hmm. instrument of awareness. And not the not the subject of awareness or the right. nominative, the agent who knows. The knower is the self. Right. The, the introspective way of uh, the organ of no no uh, sensing one's own mental states is man, manas mind. But apart from this uh, uh, inner sense and the self, which are distinct, agent and instrument. Okay, there is there are two other things that uh, we are heir to from Sankhya, and uh, that's why I don't like that. I'm not always just doubting the Nyaya line, mm -hmm. but and that one is and Nyaya doesn't have a good theory of that. Okay, but Sankhya and Vedanta does phenomenologically when the individuality that is left over in our complete lack of any of sensation or uh, perception in deep sleep. Okay, in deep sleep, the bliss body, the Anandamaya Kosha of, of the self is still alive, which, which registers this joy that we have out of not knowing anything. And for about an hour or so, if you are lucky, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. have a complete yard, not just REM sleep, but deep, deep, deep sleep. Okay, mm -hmm. which is and what is, how is that defined in Yoga Sutra, which is Indian psychology, that mm -hmm. it is uh, that it is that state of the mind of which the object is absence of all stimulus. No, no stimulus. Mm -hmm. But who registers that? Now you would say the self registers that. No. Because when you identify, you can point at that. Whatever. So there's a presupposition 
whatever can be pointed at is not the real self because the real self is the pointer mm-hmm. the real self is the meaner i mm-hmm. i would insist even if it takes two more minutes um mm-hmm. i would insist that i would like to uh, read a small passage from uh, kesi bhattacharya mm-hmm. uh, okay in in this which is which i have not talked about in the thing but mm-hmm. why strosonian person mm-hmm. because when you ask the word ahamkara ego usage literally means whatever is meant by the word i so in this chapter i was saying what is meant by the word i we are trying to grasp this transcendental unity of our perception but that cannot be meant by i okay so there i go against kant if you if you think that kant was saying in the i think that accompanies all possible experiences which unites them i is a word no even kant doesn't mean i as a pronoun when the pronoun i when i refer to myself by i it must be something since i use it in communication that's the first step it must be something that my interlocutor can see which what thing i am meaning mm-hmm. if it is something that is accessible to only me and not even accessible to me because mm-hmm. it is transcendental yeah mm-hmm. it cannot be meant by any word and mm-hmm. therefore not by the word i mm-hmm. since i the moment i say i am sad i have got vaccinated and then another another person understands you have got vaccinated arindam has got vaccinated mm-hmm. without making arindam and i synonymous mm-hmm. i want to capture for i something which is both bodily and conscious mm-hmm. that is both has been predicates and in predicates and that's a strosonian person and that is called by madhusudan saraswati not atma but the ahamkar vachya the mean and what is it called aham padavachya so aham arthasya anatmatvam that the meaning of aham is not the atma but ahamkar the meaning of i usage and that is called chit jada granthi it's a knotted you know tangle mm-hmm. tangle of consciousness and materiality mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so when i say i it is only accessible to me but the same thing is meant by another person when they say you and hence the importance of addressing and right. addressing is that's why so interesting because mm-hmm. in addressing i recognize that you are an i but not mm-hmm. i right and i have talked about this in a, in a chapter on the second Yeah you have the the discussion on the, about the basically the vocative the using yeah, the address to 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 one another person. and there's a longer paper in the internet called mm-hmm. the trouble with you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right well that, that's helpful so so this is one of the interesting things here too is uh as you just said sometimes people might think well what 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 arindam is doing is he's defending the the nyaya the nyaya view of the self or the nyaya view of realism and what you've just said is very clear that that's not the case because uh i um in in the self sorry the the self in the nyaya sense let me back up the self in the nyaya sense is 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 a persisting unchanging uh immaterial substance which is not going to be yes. a, a strassonian person right and they have no problem saying 
that it is picked out by the word I every time mm-hmm. one uses it. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, if you give me just one minute, please. There is something that I don't know how much Navjan Nyaya, Kesi Bhattacharya used to read. My sense is that not much. Mm-hmm. He was steeped in the Upanishads and Shankaracharya mostly. Otherwise, he would be just reading Kant and nothing else. And he had so much to think about his own. I think there's very little reference to other philosophers. Mm-hmm. Okay. But he says something that Gadadhara in the, in the book also is aware of. But goes, mm-hmm. I think he's more sophisticated. He says, uh, section 10 of subject of freedom, the notion of subjectivity, first chapter. He says, the subject understood as the unique speaker. So the subject is the speaker, not what is spoken of. Okay. Actual or possible speaker of the word I. Who is the subject? We are all answering the question by saying, what does the word I refer to? He would agree, Kesi Bhattacharya, with Anscombe and Wittgenstein, it Mm -hmm. refers to nothing. Hmm. Without being a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. But then, what does it mean? It means the speaker. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Of that word I, not any speaker. Right. Okay. Right. Now, and the object that is meant as distinct from the subject are two distinct things that are known. The reality of what is meant. And then finally, he reaches the conclusion, a little bit like Aquinas about God. But he says, I, or the subject, is the unmeant meaner. Mm-hmm. The unmeant meaner. Like the unmoved mover. Unmeant meaner. It means everything else mm-hmm. in the sense of, in the Christian sense of meaning, like an, mm-hmm. a speech act. Meaning right. is a speech mm-hmm. act, but it mm-hmm. is the speaker. It is the knower. It is mm-hmm. the meaner. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not the meaner word, but the meaner person. Okay. And it can itself never be meant. Mm-hmm. This is the self of Kesi Bhattacharya. Mm-hmm. And one has to constantly notice, even Strawson does, that mm-hmm. when that embodied person refers to himself as I, unlike others who refer to his body, he's not referring just to his body. He's mm-hmm. referring to his conscious life, etc., mm-hmm. etc. But which is like a Spinozaistic substance, which has, which has to be seen under two attributes. Mm-hmm. The attribute of materiality, which is the embodied subject. And that is why Kesi Bhattacharya, who is such a great Vedantist, such a great Upanishad person, mm-hmm. writes two chapters. Bodily subjectivity one, bodily subjectivity two. Hmm. So even in the Strassonian person, there are some hallmarks of uniqueness. For example, I cannot perceive, even externally perceive, all of myself. Mm-hmm. I cannot mm-hmm. see my back. Right. And these all show that the Upanishadic self mm-hmm. is a graded self. It is first embodied it's the Strasonian mm-hmm. person, but mm-hmm. like a Strasonian person, then it is a, it is it is an eater. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it is eaten by death. It's an eater, and you cannot be an eater unless you have a digestive system. So right. it is the Annamaya kosha, and then it is a breather, an whole dimension. Some of my one of my PhD students is working on this on prana on on the concept right. of bre- breathing self. And then it is a dreamer. Mm-hmm. And then it is a deep sleeper. And then it is nothing. 
Shunya Pramata, Abhinavagupta calls it empty knower. Okay, so there is the, the bodily knower, even in Abhinavagupta, there is mm-hmm. Pramata. All of them are knowers. Mm-hmm. The bodily knower who is at a certain distance from the object, therefore, his knowing is limited by his body, but limited doesn't mean false, it is mm-hmm. real. That's a self. Okay, so this is, um, I'm trying to be clear, but yeah, it's not something well, that you can absolutely pin down to. Right. Yeah, well, like like you say, it's a grunt and it's a nod. It's it's a, it's a yeah. multiple senses here. It's, yeah, right, right. It's not. It's yeah. a tangle. Mm-hmm, it's a tangle. Oh, chit yeah. jada, chit mm-hmm. conscious jada inert. Mm-hmm. So materiality and mentality tangled together. Yeah, yeah. Right. But you have yeah, to maintain this... that distinction. That's why I used to ask Strawson, "Where did you get this from? Who is your most favorite rationalist philosopher?" He said, "I am an empiricist. I don't like the rationalist." So mm-hmm. I said, but who is your most? He said, Spinoza. I got mm. my idea of a person from Spinoza. Hmm. Because the P predicates and M predicates. And that's what you will see in, in anomalous monism of Davidson. This non-translatability is emphasized. That what you say about the self under the attribute of consciousness, you cannot translate. It is incommensurable with mm-hmm. brain language, language of neuroscience language of the physical body or behavior. But yet, it is, there is only, you know, one fact, as it were, when you say, I know something, but that fact can be, or I see something, or I touch something, I feel hot. Mm-hmm. Okay? Even in that, there's a completely non-bodily part, which is the phenomenal qualia, I feel hot. But I feel hot, you don't know, you'll never know. Even if you put a thermometer, you don't know what it's for me to feel hot. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the chit part. And the achit part is this. That is why chit achit jara granthi is ahamkar. And that's the meaning of I. I think that's clear enough. Yeah. So so this then, I mean, the next question that I was going to ask you was why do we need to discuss other other subjects? Because you might think you have you have objects, subjects, well, we're done. Why do we need other subjects? But I think our conversation here has sort of touched on why why right. this need for other subjects. So, so maybe you can just kind of pin it down for us. And what? Oh, I can say you know, it in one sentence. What's at stake? Yeah. Because, because uh, a subject cannot attribute mental states to itself. It cannot even recognize itself as an I until it is addressed by other subjects. And a subject cannot see itself as a knower of an object which is not dreamt up by him, but is really out there, unless there is no other way of, way of knowing that an object is out there. And therefore, I am someone seeing that object without making sure that other people can also see the same object. The mm-hmm. distinction between appearance and reality, which is fundamental for any kind of realism, it comes from detection of illusion in one's own perceptions. Mm-hmm. And that detection of illusion can only be prevented by asking around other people, however foolish mm-hmm. that might be. Mm-hmm. Do you also see it like that? Mm-hmm. Okay, And that's why, although it is not by democratic majority opinion that objectivity is established. Right. Okay, mm-hmm. But we have to keep checking against other people's perspectives. And thereby, we, we don't only become 
modest and non-arrogant and empathy or be considerate towards other perspective. No. So we know ourselves as someone only when we know our distinction from the other. And there is also a huge another aspect which comes from my, not from analytic philosophy, not from Nyaya, but mm-hmm. from my um, meticulous study over the last 10 years uh, of Levinas, mm-hmm. which is the responsibility for the other. And uh, I, I have an idea, which I have not anthologized or put in this book, but uh, this notice, the so-called reality of the external object. It's not just me. Like, you know, take the ordinary language habit of insisting. Like when I suspect that, okay, I'm, I'm finding the behavior of the present Indian government, you know, like toxic and sat- satanic. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I may have doubt because if I hear other people say otherwise. I say, is it just me? Right. Now, what does that mean? That means, or is it really the case? So even ob- sort of moral realism, objectivism about ethical values or aesthetic values, okay, is dependent upon, uh, you know, my accepting that other people see it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And if, if it stands the test of multiple points of view, like something is physically objective, if it stands the test within me of Mm -hmm. touching and seeing. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if it stands the test of both being perceived by me and other human beings, and the otherness goes even beyond that, also being perceived and found to be, let's say, edible or found to be nourishing or Mm -hmm by animals mm-hmm. so i have afterwards that's why i Not just I, humans, yeah. I would like to get at least two three minutes to talk about sure. the other yeah. work that i'm doing now yeah let's do that. something on birds and beasts in the mahabharata yeah, why let's, is let's it? Turn to it. Mm-hmm. yeah so what are you what are you working on now you said uh, birds and, and bees in the mahabharata no not bees beasts Beasts. Okay, that makes. Sense. <laughs> I was thinking the birds and the bees. You know, birds and beasts in, oh, in the mom heart. No, but yeah. birds and beasts. Um, so, um, but what I am primarily tasked with now is finishing soon enough. Not like Michael Davids' inaugural lecture, uh, mm-hmm. a, more, a larger book on, uh, which will be at least as large as realism interlinked on moral psychology of emotion. I have been teaching, researching, publishing on this a lot, which will have a little bit of mostly ethics, but some aesthetics, uh, some Natya Shastra, Abhinav Gupta's Natya Shastra, and it's called Inquiry into Feeling and Truth. Okay. Um, on pride, shame, um, and uh, boredom, and all that, and you know, the truth claims. So that's one big thing I am supposed to be working on. I don't know how to finish it, um, but it's kind of done. Um, there's a chapter on gratitude at the time of uh, crisis, which is about the current crisis, and mm-hmm. it's about grat- gratefulness. And mm-hmm. uh, so that's what is being done. I've already presented it. And then there is a contracted work 
that many people are asking me about um, a book of questions which is which was once written it has 25 chapters it's an analytical overview analytical examination of topic wise of indian philosophy mm-hmm. many many things again okay. you know four parts uh, metaphysics epistemology ethics aesthetics so mm-hmm. these four parts and uh, all of it is written but i am trying to make it crisper and mm-hmm. it's penguin penguin random house uh, oh, nice. will publish this mm-hmm. and uh, the cover page and all has been done and advertised but uh, so that's the so moral psychology of emotions and the book of questions those are the two major mm-hmm. things and then um um there is a ready book that i promised last summer to stony brook when i left them and this would be my uh, contribution as the that matu chair that i was and mm-hmm. that's ready it's being reviewed now uh, for you know sort of copy editing and so on it's called the philosophy of the mahabharata i don't know which part. i think suni or somebody will publish it i don't know it so philosophy of the mahabharata and uh, and then this abhinav with the teachings are being recorded and there are about six or seven chapters of the abhinav gupta book which because of his name abhinav means new mm-hmm. and gupta means secret or concealed mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so i am thinking of calling it the secret of novelty because this is also a problem i told you earlier that how can new insights come mm-hmm. so, jayant says that uh, there is nothing new right um, uh, in the in in philosophy right. but is it just a reformulation of old problems and old positions or could there be really something miraculously new uh, in finding the truth mm-hmm. and that's a genuine problem mm-hmm. which i address mm-hmm. in the last chapter of this abhinav gupta thing and mm-hmm. then uh, last but one is a 200 page manuscript on isha upanishad i am obsessed wow. with isha upanishad mm-hmm. because of something very strange isha upanishad has 18 verses mm-hmm. 18 verses mm-hmm. and i have this weird uncanny intuition that these 18 verses are commented upon in the 18 chapters of the gita mm. so that's not the only thing i say but i go word for word and mm-hmm. detail and i compare about 20 different uh, interpretations i don't know how much your teacher steve was mm-hmm. originally an aurobindite and he yes. wrote his first book on aurobindo yes. i don't know how much aurobindo you have read but you know his famous most book is divine life divine mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. yes of course you know what the history of the book is he wrote 10 unfinished commentaries on the Isha Upanishad in English and then finally he was not satisfied he wrote an 11th one mm-hmm. which he called like divine life divine. Ah, okay did not and it's that. all collected now all the other 10 in a volume called Isha Upanishad okay. by the pandichari arvind ashtu so okay. i uh, my own interpretation of the Isha Upanishad and the last is in the context of book of questions at the last chapter i raise a speculative possibility which is most crazy that the world the universe reality may not be totality of things 
or a totality of facts, but maybe a totality of questions or problems. So what is a question is something that I am hmm. working on almost every day. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding all sorts of corroborations in Abhinava Gupta. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very, still very undeveloped, undefended idea that there is some kind of a gappy openness mm. in reality itself and maybe in the self that hmm. it is it not only asks questions, consciousness, mm-hmm. but it is of the form, it is ontologically a, a question. My, right. Uh, have you read Asimov? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. He has a he has a wonderful story which called the last question about the future. Mm-hmm. If you read that, you mm-hmm. get a little bit of an idea of where I'm going. Although I was okay. not, I mean, I was not inspired by Asimov. Somebody else okay. told me uh, okay. a month back yes. that I should read that. Okay, great. Bye. Well, that is uh, quite a lot uh, of of work that you're working on currently. We'll we'll look forward to seeing seeing those projects when they're they're done. Uh, Arindam, thank you again for taking the time to talk to uh, to us about your book for the podcast, and um, I really appreciate your time. So, thank, thank you, you so much.